And welcome to this episode of Gray Matter with Michael Krasny. Today, I want to welcome Dr. Luann Brissendine, who is a neuropsychiatrist and also professor at the University of California, San Francisco, as well as the founder and director of the first clinic to treat women's brain functions, the Women's Mood and Hormone Clinic, located at the University of California, San Francisco. She's a pioneer clinician and researcher, and Dr. Brissendine actually discovered a special interest and passion for studying the brain as a medical student at Yale, then as a student and faculty member at Harvard. Her first book, The Female Brain, was published back in 2006. It was quite popular. In fact, it sold close to a million copies, translated into over 30 languages, and was even turned into a comedic motion picture starring Whitney Cummings and Sofia Vergara. It was followed by two subsequent books, which have both been very well received, The Male Brain, which came out in 2010, and The Upgrade in 2022. And welcome, Luann Brizendine. Thanks for having me again, Michael. It's wonderful to see you and be with your audience. And great to be seen, and also great to have the audience here with us. And they will indeed, no doubt, have questions to ask you about the brain. I have an initial question to ask, because uh, I've certainly kept pace, and as you've indicated, we've had wonderfully, which I privilege to have, uh, discussions in the past, conversations in the past. Uh, we're also friends. Uh, and yet, it's always dawned on me. I mean, we were talking a little bit before we began this episode about a show I did a long time ago with Francis Crick of uh, fame, uh, Watson and Crick, the double helix. And uh, he had written a book on neurons, and he said, this is really all we are, are is neurons. And Luann was saying to me, well, maybe all we are are atoms. You know, we were just kind of taking up space with atoms. You read Luann's work, and you read Luann's research, and you wonder, are we all just hormones? I mean, is, is that really what is dictating? So, it almost sounds deterministic. And I ra raise the question, not so much philosophically, but just in terms of concern. How much are we governed by the endocrine system in our brains and all these hormones that are dictating our behavior and our sexuality and just everything we seem to be thinking and doing. Well, of course, Michael, that's what I got very interested in is that that the profundity of the hormonal drive that we all have, which we, you know, we, we start in our puberty years. We start to really feel it that way. I mean, if you can think of young males in their teens, I mean, you know, they walk around with erections all the time and that's hormones. That's not like just something that they're thinking of, oh, I'd like to have an erection. It's like, it's their hormones pressuring them in that area. And the females, we run around also with like, we, our, mother nature put us females on the earth to uh, do the, what we call the come hither dance. So, you know, the, the purpose of the hormones in the sexual arena are to cause procreation. So, you know, Mother Nature made it so that all of these systems work together in the male and female in order to have offspring. But what about all those males, for example, who don't have erections all the time, who are maybe even asexual? I guess there is certainly a uh, there seems to be a diagnosis of asexuality. Uh, I remember an old Phil Donahue show where they had asexuals who said, we're not recognized, we're not given enough importance, but we have no drive, no desire. Or the young women who have none of that come hither sort of desire to reproduce. They're on the spectrum, aren't they? So That's right. And that the come hither, you know, is basically driving the whole the beauty industry is getting, you know, the beauty industry is such, such a huge business, but it's all about the come hither part that the hormones is doing. But, you know, to be to be fair, in anything that we talk about, there is this huge diversity 
of of you know of either asexual or hypersexual mis- we're we're all on the spectrum all of us if we look where we are on any spectrum of anything we want to look at our personalities uh, our appearance the amount we sleep how much we like to eat how you know just all kinds of things it's there's a huge diversity and i think especially when you hit the the topic of sexuality there is a huge diversity no one person is like another person. We are all we are all unique, but there are some commonalities. In we're all the same species. We're all the same species, and I say that about that. People are always asking me, "Well, well, what's the difference between the male and female brain?" Blah blah blah. And I am always saying, "Like, well, first of all, we have to understand we we're more alike than different because we are the same species." Well, let's talk about starting with the female brain. What's distinct about the female brain? And now you've done this upgrade book where you take us into a reckoning with uh, how the female brain. Actually, with proper exercise, sleep, and the rest of it can be even more focused, sort of postmenopausal and in the later years. Absolutely. So, you know, I think the thing to know about the male and female difference, so let's just talk about that for a minute and then slide into the female uh, hormone piece of it. Because remember, at the moment that the sperm enters the egg, so when, when you were conceived or I was conceived, Michael, that the sperm from your father was carrying a Y chromosome and your mother, the egg that you were, had an X. So you were going to be XY, you're going to be male. And for me, the sperm from my father was carrying an X. So I'm going to be XX female. So at the moment of conception, that's when, boom, your uh, your sex is determined at that point. At that point, eight weeks later in the male, the tiny testicles in the male start to pump out huge amounts of testosterone, and it marinates the whole little body of this tiny, tiny fetus, changing all kinds of things into the male, including the brain and the brain circuits. So these genes, and the female then is left what we call unperturbed by the testosterone that's marinating the little male fetus. And so that just starts off the way in which we are tweaked in either a female or a male direction from the get-go. And yet now we have uh, a lot of, well, folks writing and talking about the fluidity of gender that somehow, even trying to redefine what is a woman and all of that. Oh, absolutely. So we're talking about the difference between you know, sex. Sex is what, what your chromosomes are. And the your, your gender or gender fluidity can be and your gender identity can can have all kinds of causes and all kinds of aspects to that. Some of them can actually be hormonal. I'll give you one example that we know um, a lot about. M- much of we don't know about, but I can tell you some of the things we do know about. We have one um, thing that's well known called the androgen, the androgen um, resistance syndrome, where basically some males will have re- androgen or testosterone receptors that don't respond to the testosterone at all. It's kind of blocked. And so it won't respond to that. So the whole thing I just told you about, about developing all kinds of things into the male brain and the male genitals and all this, it won't happen in that particular person with XY, even though they have a Y. And they will be born with the genitalia uh, that that is more female. But for the most part, we're talking about for example, you're talking about testosterone getting very developed uh, at an early stage. By the time kids are like in preschool, 
you've got boys who are playing with toys entirely differently than girls, almost predominantly, isn't it? That's right. So, you know, so what happens, there's a very cool, it's not, it's not taught in biology class so much, but there's a, there's a period of our life which we call infantile puberty. And I love this period of life because at age nine months old for the boy, up to, up to nine from the day, from one month to about nine months, 10 months, 12 months old in a, in, a, in a baby boy, his testosterone level is as high as almost an adult male's. And so um, those people who change the diapers of little baby boys know they have, their genitalia is like, you know, like even overdeveloped for the rest of their body because they are making lots and lots of testosterone. And it's called infantile puberty. And that testosterone it's, is thought to be kind of the finishing school, finishing school for all of the, the brain circuitry, the genital circuits, all the kinds of things that are going to make that particular body into um and in, eventually into a fertile male. So, but about one year old, it all quiets down in humans, it quiets down. And until like about 12 or 13 for the boy, that testosterone is very quiet at very low levels. So even though, so all of his brain and genitalia have pretty much been set by that point. But you're talking about the toys and the rough and tumble play that we know boys do. You know, Eleanor Maccabee down at Stanford did the most beautiful work over like 40 years on minute uh, experiments, just observations, watching three and four-year-old boys and girls play in the preschools and things and, and took detailed records of it all. And of course, the little boys will prefer different types of toys from little girls. Little boys will sit down and play dolls or play the type of what's called with girls relationship play, like you be the daddy, I be the mommy. The boys will do that for with with little girls for maybe about maybe ten or fifteen minutes, and then they're up and running. Come on, guys, let's go get them. The very what we call rough and tumble play and active play. So even these behavioral things will show up at that stage before puberty. And the little girl, by the way, the infantile puberty in little girls lasts from age one month old to two years, which means her ovaries are pumping out almost adult female levels of estrogen for the first two years of her life. And that's also, once again, thought to be the kind of the finishing school for the genitalia and all of the reproductive organs, her uterus and her ovaries, getting ready for later on for fertility. And also, of course, the brain circuits for being um, tuned to uh, be prepared at puberty to do what we call, call the come-hither dance. So it's, it's... That's the female brain. That's the female brain. Yeah. And and in your new book, you talk about uh, well the female brain developing in a way and being developable, I guess, to use a word that probably doesn't even exist, uh, in ways that had never before been conceived. You should forgive the choice of words there. <laughs> I mean, in, in other words, there's much more you can do with your brain. We're talking about women past what age, roughly? Yeah. So you know, let's let's. So we're we're talking age. You know, starting maybe forty-five to fifty-five when the we call it the puberty in reverse, sort of puberty in reverse, when the menstrual cycle and all the fertility cycle has has basically has retired, shall we say, at that stage in females. And, you know, the, as the puberty starts up in girls, you know, somewhere between age 10 to, to 13, 14, that menstrual cycle starts because the pituitary is pinging the ovaries to make estrogen at a certain time. And the ripening of the follicles of the egg in the ovaries 
have to pop out, you know, every month, and that's what we call the menstrual cycle. So this whole period where in the we call day one of day one of bleeding, Michael, we call day one of the menstrual cycle. So that whole first week is kind of a quiet hormonal week, and then the ovary starts to pump out huge amounts of estrogen, which goes very, very high, and it's it probably two days before ovulation is at its peak. I say women tend to be more verbal. All the studies show that women, they might wear their hair a little more sexy, put on a little more makeup, shorter skirts, whatever it is that's that come-hither dance. The come-hither dance is in full bloom a couple of days before ovulation. I say, of course, that's the way Mother Nature made it. It's like it's the look. women are supposed to look for the best sperm. They're, that's what they're doing. They're out there being driven by their hormones so to look for like the, the best sperm. It sounds like the old sociobiology sperm. stuff. It, it really is. It, it, let me so, back you up just a yeah. second on that because— didn't you get into some problem with the number of words women use? <laughs> yes, exactly. So there is a—the the studies show that women—we're we, at our most verbal at that two days before I, before ovulation. I always tell my female graduate students, if you're going to schedule your oral exams, schedule them two days before ovulation because you're at your verbal best at that time. So, no, but I was thinking about something that you had to change in the Oh, yes, brain. the number of words spoken. So, you know, because men also think that women are much more chatty and stuff. And so a guy named Pennybacker decided after my book came out, and there was there was some uh, very loose evidence about the, the difference between the words women spoke and men speak. I mean, I know you, Michael, are the th- type that also is a man who speaks a lot. So, but anyway, it, it, it turns out that if you, it, you have to take it in context. So if you're looking at uh, the topic of sports, for example, or something about talking about the yesterday's ball game or whatever, men actually use more words than women do, is, is how the, the studies that ended up being done have turned out. And females talk a lot more with each other and with their girlfriends about relationship issues or about the kids, or like females complain a lot to each other about their spouse. But again, there's a big spectrum. Right? There's a huge spectrum. It's every it's, it's so unique, you know, it's so different that it's hard to really really say say much of anything. But at any rate, that, that thing about that menstrual cycle and the hormonal push, like you, we were talking in the beginning, the behavioral push, you know, we don't like, we like to think we have free will. If you, you know, I did a couple of years of what's called philosophy of mind in, 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 a t- in graduate school. And uh, I was like one of the only people in my class that had had any neurobiology before, which I did neurobiology at, at UC Berkeley. But and so it was very odd for me to be in classes, you know, we were reading Wittgenstein and all the philosophers, and, and that the the philosophy of mind and the free will idea comes up smack head on in a collision course with this idea that our hormones drive our behavior so much. And so from a, as a biologist, from my point of view, and as a sociobiologist, it's very clear that hormones don't do everything, but they are under the under the hood. You open the hood, and they are they're driving us in a certain direction, particularly during our fertility years, because the fertility years are Mother Nature is saying that men are supposed to sow their seed far and wide and produce as many offspring as they can, and we fem- females are supposed to be out there searching for the best sperm, and that's what our behaviors are, are supposed Lawrence to be Lawrence Ferlinghetti, doing. scattering my semen across the landscape, scattering my seed across the landscape. But, and yet at the same time, you know, you think about um, 
this does get us into sociobiology, which was heavily criticized for being racist, for example, back in the day. I know. It's, it's such a, when you look at it now, we think it's kind of ridiculous just because of the biology is so clear. Well, it's very but. Darwinian, really, uh, isn't it? I mean, when you, when you really examine sociobiology, it just is a kind of post-Darwinian theory that goes back to uh, our biology and goes back to our genes and goes essentially to our... By the way, best line I ever heard about free will was when I asked a Nobel Prize-winning author, Isaac Bashevis Singer, do you believe in free will? And his answer was, I have no choice. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> uh, we've got some questions before we go on with my questions and things I want to pursue with you. Like I said, no dearth of things that I want to talk about with Luann. But here's Laura Thompson from Beaumont who says, what are some recommendations beyond the standard ones for getting better sleep? Which is really an important question in terms of your new book, The Upgrade, because The Upgrade, that focus focus sort of postmenopausal has a lot to do with sleep and exercise and diet. Yeah. Absolutely. And so I think that, um, so just the backside of the fertility years, the puberty and reverse years. So my new book is about the upgrade and it's how the female brain actually is able to get even better and stronger after we finish the menstrual cycle. It's very cool. We kind of go back to our more authentic selves and are, are not being driven by this kind of search for the best sperm, if you will. <laughs> so that's a... The come hither is gone. The, the come hither. Well, the come hither is still so much embedded in us females that it's not completely gone. But on the other hand, there's another, you know, the whole... The whole, the whole grandmother thing and going going into the to another another world, we're preparing for a whole another. Well, libido uh, decreases, yes, and the libido really decreases yeah. a lot as the hormonal surges quiet down, both in males and females. In females, it's called menopause, and males, it's called andropause. And excuse me, men stop looking using a quote from Luann Risen and. Uh, at chests as if they look at butterflies. That... <laughs> That's right. The, uh, yes, men, uh, the, the, the joke about the breasts, you get into an elevator and a man is just like looking straight at your breasts and the, and the, and the woman looks at him and says, hi, I'm up here. <laughs> so she wants to know about yes. that better sleep. So, and... so, one of the th so my new book is all about keeping your, basically keeping your brain in the best shape it can be in to um, you know, seize kind of the upgrade of, of the whole next half of your life. And it's kind of a three-cornered stool as I look at it. Sleep is one of those legs. And also another leg of the stool is exercise and the other leg is, is nutrition. So this, But the sleep is really a profound, profoundly important area to keep your brain healthy. And I, I think that one of the, um, the best ways I like to think about sleep is what biologically is happening when we sleep. One of the things is that your neurons that all touch each other during the day, they're chat, the neurons are chatting away, problem solving in your brain. They're really active all during the day and they're they're throwing garbage all over the place they're they're throwing this protein garbage all over the place as the neurons are talking and chatting and problem solving with each other all during your day and so then at night what happens is the neurons kind of quiet down a bit and they shrink back from each other actually creating these spaces for rivers to throw flow between the neurons to flush out all the garbage it's like you know, like in Paris, they had those little green machines. They go around flushing out things in the in the gutters. They flush out. If you don't sleep, your brain doesn't get flushed out of all of the garbage of all of these proteins that are created during the day. So, in order to wake up refreshed the next day with the garbage cleaned out of your brain, you must be able to sleep. So, you got to get rid of all that. Uh, they used to call flotsam and jetsam, right? Yeah, the flotsam and jetsam. All the effluvia. Yeah, you got to have. It's basically called the glymphatic system, G L Y M, glymphatic system, which is basically like your lymph 
system in the rest of your body, but in the brain, it's called glymphatic. And those are the little rivers that have to like get flushed out every night. That sleep is causing the flushing out. So sleep, how do you, how do you do it? So I mean, I give, I give like, I think it's on page 82. I get Luann's, Luann's sleep uh, to the new, but Luann, Luann's sleep program of, of my own, which is, it's, and there's some, there's some draconian methods some people have to take. So it's how, it's how, if your sleep is really bad. This is assuming your conscience is clear and you can sleep well at night. That's right. Well, you got to get your, so basically caffeine is a, is, is, is a killer to sleep. Caffeine is really bad, especially in the, postmenopausal era for, for women and sleep. And we all, you know, are so, it's, it's, it's a very profoundly addicting compound. So it's really, I'm giving you something that I understand is not easy to do. I had to do it about four or five years ago myself. And it's, you basically cannot drink caffeine past noon, just to start with. And there's some of my women patients that are so sensitive that they cannot even have dark chocolate past noon because it has enough caffeine in it to kind of the caffeine just keeps keeps your your brain just a little bit too alert to drop off to sleep. So if you're one of those people that have trouble falling asleep, the falling asleep piece and you is really caffeine sensitive. Forgive me, are women more moody than men? Is it more difficult to in the sensitivity to sleep, I think that the reason that it's this period of life between age like 45 and 55, women may be more sensitive to this by far and by more sensitive to caffeine because the hormonal changes are jerking her brain system around so much. We are we are not, you know, so that during that period, we may be much more sensitive to both alcohol and to caffeine. So the alcohol is the other thing. If you're a person who falls asleep, but then you wake up a couple of hours later and can't get back to sleep, Look at your alcohol consumption because alcohol after about 6 p.m. will just keep your brain from being able to stay asleep. So those two things are the biggest, like, easy to identify culprits in our culture and in the ways, the habits that we have. Except insomnia can be a mystery, too, and an enigma. A mystery. And, yeah. and I think the other piece is, is that you're, you need to let your body feel tired enough to go to sleep. So that may mean that you... Have the exercise piece overlaps with this. It's not like you need to go and kill yourself on a Peloton for 45 minutes till you're dripping and, and, and ready to throw up your working sore. It basically means you need to have a, a you need to have a 30 minute walk every day, or just do a little bit up to the level of something that's going to make you a little bit tired and fall asleep. So there's all kinds of other tricks about sleep that um, that really helps our female brain function stay healthy and spunky after this stage of life. Speaking of female brain functions, there, there's this thing called mommy brain. It's real, isn't it? The mommy brain, yes. The mommy brain never, I mean, I like, maybe I'll tell, tell you, I'll, I'll tell you this joke, Michael, but you have to, everybody has to like, okay, be ready for this She joke. knows I'm a joke of I know. Either. So we, we therapists, so we therapists have, we therapists have, have a joke that we, t it's kind of an insider joke. So, so bear with me here, Michael, it's an insider joke. So this, this late 90s year, 95 plus year old couple comes to the couples, their marriage couple is saying, we thought we, we had to come see you because we want to get a divorce. And uh, so the couples there is just, you know, ready to do her usual job and whatever. But she says, first, I, I hope you don't mind, but I have to ask you, like, okay, but why now? And they said, oh, we had to wait for the children to die. So you're supposed to laugh, Michael. 
<laughs> no, but I, I thought the joke also we had to wait for the dog also. To yeah, die. and the dog. Yeah, yeah. whatever. But anyway, the, the point being that you once you're a parent, you never stop being a parent to the very end. And you're just so wired. I mean, and you're and you're also very wired once you have grandchildren. So the so the so issue, Dr. Johnson said we're all hostages to fortune. We're all parents. hostages yeah, yeah. to to fortune and yeah. to fate based on our kids, who they marry, what they do, where they, you know, all kinds of things about our kids. And I think that, so back to the mommy brain and how it's really wired. I mean, it's a very, mother nature, we, humans, babies are born because we have a small pelvis and we have a very small birth canal. So we have had, humans have to have babies at a much, um, not like a little giraffe who can just pop out and stand on its legs and be much more functional. We have babies that are quite immature. They should probably still be in there for another year, you know, before they hatch. But <laughs> that would be obviously impossible. So we are we are born as humans as as very very um, in, in need of great amounts of care, and so Mother Nature didn't leave it to chance to wire us females hormonally to be totally devoted, dedicated, and, you know, we, we are like we are like a heat-seeking missile with our kids just trying to anticipate their every need and be ready for every little thing they might need. And then, then we transfer that to the grandchildren once we become grandmothers. I mean, it's like, you know, we know when our grandchild is sick or whatever it is, even if they're 3,000 miles away, right, Michael? We know the details. Now there's insider stuff of a different sort, uh, grandparents talking. Here's Samantha Williams from Buffalo, New York, who says, or asks, do evolutionary pressures explain why men and women tend to have different communication styles and strategies? Hmm. So if do evolutionary pressures, could you read it again, Michael, just for a second? Uh, yeah, if we can go back to it, uh, I will read it again. Do evolutionary pressures explain why men and women tend to have different communication styles and strategies? In other words, is it the cause? Is it a result yeah. of evolution? Uh, yeah. yeah, and I think that you know the the you know the thank you for the question. Thanks, it's a great question. That's it's an important question. I mean, you could we could do volumes on that one yeah. because it's such a such a huge topic. And the um, you know evolutionary pressures in whatever culture that you're living in are are basically going to cause you to behave differently and they're going to shift things. And over generations, it will be passed on to your kids and passed on to your kids, those kinds of things. So the the the, the male-female differences, like for example, let's say, let's say in the caveman age, well, it's like where physical, in the areas when physical strength between males and females, um, male strength was a very highly valued uh, uh, asset for males, and it was like something that females would, would choose that over other things. Living now, females may decide to choose males who are more techie or more like they're more bra they're more brainiacs than they are muscle acts. You know, there there's there's a huge amount of difference based on the culture you live in in terms of the choices that we all make for mate choices, and that that over over time, over generation and generation and generation, that will have an effect. I'm going to go to some more questions uh, from our listeners, but before I do, something that kind of gnaws at me when I think about, uh, we have this explanation that like a lot of school killings and shootings that have been going on, serial killings, almost all men, almost all men. To get back to what I was originally asking you about hormones, I mean, big spectrum, but and there are a lot of factors, the ease of buying guns, the toxic masculinity. I mean, we can go through cultural facets of this. But how much of that is testosterone? Um, well, you know, that's a that's a great question, and of course, 
you know, it's such a huge problem and issue in our culture that I, I, I can't do that justice, but I could take a teeny piece of it that you're asking the question about, which is like, of course, you know, testosterone starts to, to drive. I mean, remember, testosterone levels in males is about tenfold higher than in females. And that's that's huge when it comes to that the drug that just how much higher is the estrogen in women? Ma and males and female fem males have a little less estrogen than females, especially during the well during the menstrual cycle when they're when the in the fertile years. But actually, as we when we're younger and when we get older, males and females have about the same amount of estrogen. And actually, because testosterone converts into estrogen in the body, you males at age sixty have about four times more estrogen than we females. But that's another story, at any rate. But the t the young young male shooters, young male shooters, in our culture, that um, it's 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 not fifty year olds that's doing males that's doing this. It's it's males in the their exception of the late, man in Las Vegas who right, tried to gun down course. as many as he yeah. could. But, yeah. but usually the late teens to early twenty. I mean, that's in that yeah. in that say ten Almost or fifteen always. year range. Always teen brain not even developed. Teen brain is not even yeah. completely developed, and also you know. Um, I think also the issue of, of humiliation, of just the, uh, I think the combination, it's the, the, toxic, the toxic combination of having a lot of testosterone and these young males who are feeling like, like humiliated by some situation uh, uh, that has, um, you know, that, that, that has, you know, that, that the issue of mental illness is another one, you know, in terms of, of being, uh, being psychotic. Or being, you know, so there's there's so many elements that come into it, but I do think that you're pointing to something, Michael, that the testosteroneized young male is a part of that toxic brew that's that ends up with young shooters. The toxic brew can come from culture because, to some degree, you don't see this phenomenon in many other national cultures. You just see it largely in the United States of America. Tempe, Arizona, we have a question from Chris who wants to know, are the terms female brain and male brain shorthand for phenomena that are more distributed throughout our bodies? So remember, um, that's a wonderful question. Remember, each of our cells in our body, each cell in our body is either a male or female cell. So we're, we're having, you know, females have the, we have our, our you know, our genes, our, we have our double X's and you guys have your XY. So every, basically, you know, all the cells in our body have a bit of a stamp of the, of the male or female, be depending on which 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 sex we are. So you know the the the, the kidney, the male kidney and female kidney are slightly different. The, obviously, the genitals are di the most difference that we see. The brains are somewhat different. You know the the breasts are different because we females have estrogen and 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 males. If we pumped up males to have more estrogen, they would grow breasts too. So there's it's. The, heart, the, the tissues in our body, the cells in our body respond to those profound um, estrogen or testosterone hormones that we make, especially during the increase during puberty. The differences, though, because of hormones are, well, numerous. I mean, particularly as you pin them down in your work, begin to see men, I mean, the, the old assumption is men are less empathic and they want to solve problems more and that sort of thing. And yet we find that men often respond more emotionally. They fall in love quicker, for example, which may come as a surprise Yeah, so to I wrote another book called The Male Brain, which is, um, yeah. at any rate, that's, uh, I know a few, a few, few male therapists use that in courses they give on, on masculinity and trying to, uh, and I know Carlos Santana, you know, the, uh, the musician also read that book and he told me that it was the best book he ever read. It helped him forgive himself for many things in his life. <laughs> 
So take that for, you know, I, and I, I, pre- I preface it with that because, you know, our behaviors are obviously part of our personality, our culture, how we're raised, but we are really hormonally driven creatures, be us, be whether we're male or female. And that, that part is a, it's also a way to forgive yourself for being just who you end up being. You're not, we're not just a bag of hormones. We have free will to choose to do, to do something or not do something. But I think it's really important to understand the push, the, the hormonal push that's under there. I give the, the most common, um, you know, the hunger hormones, the hormones we have that says your stomach's going to growl and you're, you're ready to go to the kitchen for some food, that's all caused by hormones. So we're not just talking about sex hormones, so the, so the hunger ones. And thirst, the thirst hormones, you know, we're, we're being driven, all kinds of behaviors are being driven all of the time, like every few minutes of the day. Lust is driven by hormones. Is love driven by hormones? Love and lust are, are driven by hormones, too. So that kind of feel like the male, feel, you're saying the male falling in love much more quickly. I mean, that that is thought to be um, that, that men are, men are um, in terms of, of your visual, your visual search engine, males looking for fertile females. You're looking for an a, attractive female with the, the typical. This is the this is the the stereotype. The, the the attractive female with large breasts, the thin waist, and and large hips and thighs. It's supposed to be the that's the that's males can like that's kind of like you know jackpot for yeah, males. But how much of this, this stereotype? Man? There are men, for example, Russian men are supposedly drawn more to heavy set women. I mean, that's the old stereotype, yeah. but it's true. It's a different stereotype. And different cultures are different, and you know they like a very flat stomach and large, large, thick lips because that means you're more estrogenized. The flat stomach means you're not already pregnant by some other man. There's you know there's all kinds of ways that that these are thought to to have. Visual signaling, visual signaling to men about the health, like the the maybe maybe a strong uh, uh, a stronger looking female, maybe in some cultures more interesting to males. So there's a cultural difference, but we all do that with each other. We visually we visually read each other very quickly, and females visually, you know, we we also the the gender identification. I think that's one interesting thing about gender fluidity, and you know, if, if you think about, uh, I'm, I'm talking about these the far ends of kind of the stereotypes, which is like the hyper masculine male and, and the hyper feminine female with these other features. I mean, there's everything everything in between because people are so unique and. I think that that's changing in our culture right now because, um, thankfully, we've come to a place where we we accept diversity in in that range of of fluidity. Well, that's that's a good thing. Uh, but you know, I'm thinking about all those Kinsey experiments and everything, where they say men would be aroused or find erotic just looking at an ankle or you know looking at a woman's ears or whatever. Or some men have a thing about shoes or feet. Yeah, yeah, yeah the yeah, fe- yeah. fetishes. Uh, <laughs> the fetishes, yes. And so there's, you know, viva la difference, but yes. again, the huge spectrum, but the differences are pretty decidedly in terms of visual imagination, just like love is very different, I think, isn't it, as an experience for men and women? Well, you know, I mean, in terms of just kind of the biology of love and the, the, the actual, the, the romantic falling in love feeling that we all know is... It lasts between twelve and eighteen months, typically. That that type of a feeling when you when you are you pair up with somebody, and then excuse it, me, you know how Freud defined that? You probably remember. You tell me how Freud. I mean, the initial falling in love, falling, in fact, is a perfect metaphor for what it is. It's a temporary psychosis. You're out of your mind. 
you're not only out of your mind. The interesting thing that's that's also shown is that your sense of yourself, the the the, the sense that we have of ourself, it expands like kind of a balloon to then our tent. The tent that it takes, it not only takes the things that you're used to of your own self, but it incorporates into your tent of yourself the other person, their likes and their dislikes and their this and their that, or their, it becomes, when you fall in love with someone, all of the little preferences and things they have, you care a lot about those. And you may even, maybe there's something emotional contagion, you may even start to develop a lot of those likes and dislikes. This emerging of the two people that sort of happens during that falling in love stage, that's actually you open this this envelope of yourself to the other person, which is kind of a, a beautiful way of bonding with the other person. Something uh, from Washington, D.C., Eric Billings wants to know, do you think the changes in hormonal levels are related to uh, neuronal plasticity? Not that the initial and final states matter, just the fact that hormonal levels are changing. Pre-puberty, puberty, menopause allows or promotes plasticity. Oh my gosh, yes, of course. That's a great question. And, and absolutely, the, you know, the stuff we're all talking about, neuronal plasticity and plasticity and trying to maintain our plasticity as we get older, you know, that's a, that's a big topic these days. But, you know, plasticity basically just means ability to change or changeable that, that these. And so one of the things that hormones actually do is it just stimulates whole circuitry, all, a lot of circuitry in your brain and body for, for, for neuronally changing the plasticity or just changing, changing the way that the circuits go and what they respond to or what they don't respond to. So absolutely, hormones are, I mean, the same thing, even even at a mi micro level, the hunger hormones, all of a sudden it's stimulating plasticity immediately to all of this, into your brain's thought, like, I'm going to go to the refrigerator and open the refrigerator and get something to eat. I mean, like, that's stimulating a whole, whole uh, behavioral system plasticity. Now, this brings up a fascinating question that is one for the philosophers and probably ageless. But I remember a friend of mine once saying, what is it that, for example, initially instills the desire for a piece of chocolate cake that's in the refrigerator that I know is there and the ability to inhibit or impede the desire and say, I'm not going to have that piece of chocolate cake? I mean, can you actually... We're wired to maybe have the desire for the chocolate cake and maybe even be hormonal, like you're well, saying. People, but there's a variation. You, there's a variation. How do you in change people. that? There's, yeah. a, there's a variation in people. I'm I'm a person that that for me, uh, for me, sweets, sweets or chocolate or chocolate cake, sweets are, are, are almost like I can't just eat one bite. I mean, it's like heroin to me. It's a feed forward thing. I eat some and I want more. I use if it's in the freezer, if there's a pint of chocolate ice cream in the freezer and I have one bite of it, I want to eat the whole thing. <laughs> you know, I keep going back and back and back. So there's a feed forward thing for the, for sweets especially. I mean, we're very our systems are very tuned to sweets. The human system is not every I mean, some people like the savory more. So there is some variation. My son doesn't like sweets, but I'm like I'm one of those people who's like, you know, um, I'm I'm a sweet addict. There's a lot of dopamine involved in this, isn't there? I mean, oh, yeah. And and like love, I was thinking what you've written about love is that it becomes like an obsession or an addiction. It's like what you're talking about with sweets. And you can't necessarily control those hormones. They're flooding you. That's right. Yeah. And so that when you're talking about this thing to the 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 willpower to resist things. I mean the willpower to the willpower to resist um to resist sex, you know, or to resist going for the you know, you know, searching out the fertile female or whatever. I mean, Mother Nature made it so that 
she could override all of your willpower because, you know, procreation of the species is, is what Mother Nature is pushing for. But, you know, there's all kinds of things we have to use willpower for. If we don't want it, if we don't want to grow out of all our clothes, we might like to inhibit ourselves from eating that whole chocolate cake. Or if we don't want to give ourselves diabetes or make ourselves sick, you know, there's all kinds of ways in which we have to like really, really curb ourselves in and have some, have some, have some uh, self-discipline. But not this. We have to realize we're pushing up against circuitry that's in our body that's like pushing us to do these things. You know, the, the the name of this podcast is Gray Matter, and we wanted that name for a number of reasons, which I've gone into and which is on our website. But gray matter, is it different in men than women? Uh, I mean, that substance of what we think of as gray matter. I ask that question in part because the male brain is actually, I believe, larger than the female brain, um, despite the fact that women are so often smarter and more intuitive and more canny and cunning and all the rest of it than we poor XYs. Um, but I want to get to the sense of gray matter. Is, is there really, or what are the real differences in terms of... So that's a good question because, you know, the the, the female brain has... we, we have just as many neurons are just squished into a to a smaller corseted into a smaller skull. You know, there's a so the issue of like what's what's the size, the brain size, and the the male brain and the male body are are larger. The male, you know, most of the average size of the average male is larger than the, than the average female. So that's just that's just one of those things that's that's in that area. So the fact that a male has more gray matter, he just has a bigger brain. So. You know, there's a. It's it's how it's always how you use it, right, Michael? Yeah. <laughs> it's how you use it, like everything else. <laughs> but it's not. It's it's ironic that in some ways, you know, women are so much smarter than men. Uh, I mean, I don't mean to give my gender a bad press here or anything along those lines. But I, when I was talking about being intuitive and sometimes being more practical and all the rest of it, here's a question from Mexico City. Uh, thank Juan Robles for this question. He wants to know again about sleep: eight hours of sleep or small naps throughout the day. Oh wow! So you know the brain. The brain. We now know um, there's some very there's some fabulous like world class researchers at my university, University of California, San Francisco, that are specialists in all of the the details of minutia of sleep. And there's a compound in our system that builds up that that's called. It's basically it's basically compounds that build up to cause us as it gets higher and higher and higher, more of it in our brains. It causes the pressure to go to sleep. The pressure for sleep. It's called the pressure, pressure for sleep, pressure for sleep compounds, pressure for sleep hormones. And so um, as it builds up, we get tired and tired during the day. You know, like at that time, you're just trying to feel like you're watching the news at night and you're, you know, you're, you've, you've missed the last 20 minutes because you've already fallen asleep. That means that your that pressure to sleep hormone has gone over the top and put you to sleep. So this idea of, of like, taking naps and things during the day. It's not a bad thing to nap. Some people are really good at taking these little mini naps, 10 to 20 minute mini naps, uh, which are which are fine for some people just to be able to kind of clean out their brain and let it let it do its rest. But the recommendation if you really want to get a the, the fullest continuous night's sleep is that you try you try not to nap. Except you know, there's some variation in this. So I want to be respectful of, of this person from Mexico City that, you know, there are some variations in terms of some people really need to nap to get their total sleep uh, debt taken care of every day. And there are people who swear by napping. Jimmy Carter, president, former president, yeah. for example, used yeah. to say. But I'm always mindful of the fact that rapid eye movement while you're sleeping is very important. So 
if you get up in the middle of the night, I've done a lot of programs with sleep clinicians and you know people who run the sleep clinics and whatnot, but never understood how much it might disturb you or not be consonant with your needs in terms of your mind and your body when you have broken up sleep as opposed to sleep that just goes straight through. Well, it's really great to get that we have chunks, you know, our chunks of sleep are in like 90 minute units and sometimes the three or four, you know, there's, I'm not, I'm not the, the detailed sleep expert, except I know the things that I need to use with my patients to help them get better sleep. But that the idea of, of sleep and we need to dream, we need to have rapid eye movement sleep. We need to also get a certain amount of the deep type of sleep. So there's, there's really, um, uh, your caller, I mean, I recommend that people try n- not to nap. If you're coming to me because we're trying to sort out the hormones and your sleep problem, I try to get you off the caffeine, get you off the alcohol, get you enough exercise during the day you feel tired, and and cut out napping just as a baseline to try to improve your sleep. And then we go from there. Some of my patients we have to modify by having them be able to take every day a 20-minute nap because they just need that extra piece in the middle of the day because otherwise they will be so tired in the evening that they won't be able to have any quality of life. So it really does vary a lot. I think that there's no one-size-fits-all. You mentioned dreams, and uh, I'd like to talk just a moment with you about dreams. Um, I want to get too incestuous, but uh, Luann's married to a close friend of mine who used to be head of Langley Porter Psychiatric uh, facility and uh, essentially a very bastion of, uh, of learning and of education at the University of California, San Francisco. And we would have talks about dreams, and he's a psychiatrist, but he's of that mind that dreams don't necessarily operate as the royal road to the unconscious, as Freud defined the dreams. Where do you stand on dreams? Well, you know, I think that, that um, I think dreams are, are magnificent in terms of sometimes the information they can give you or give you if you're in a therapy. I think of, have you ever been to an acupuncturist where they take your pulse, you know, they'll take your pulse, take your pulse in very different ways. And they're, they're feeling and seeing th- things that you don't even know are there, right? And I kind of think of the um, the, the types of psych- therapists, psychologists and psychiatrists that um, like to use dreams in the therapy and have the patient bring in their dreams. It's their way of kind of the stethoscope of the psychiatrist sometimes can be the dreams. You can open things up with it. You can open things up with it because something in the dream that a dream, a lot of the dreams that we remember are often dreams that were disturbing to us. Um, You know, I mean that, so if you wake up and you had a dream about something, if there's something that's worrying you, often you'll have some kind of a dream that doesn't seem to be exactly related to that thing that you're worrying about. But as you kind of write it down or you talk, talk to it with your therapist, um, the, the feeling tone, the feeling tone of what you're worrying about will pop out in that. So um, I don't I don't poo poo that at all. I think it's it's a way of, of understanding ourselves and understanding um, what's kind of putting what's worrying what's under there worrying us. And we're tr- our brain is always trying to problem solve. You know, we are problem solving machines. That's the thing that the brain, you know, wants to do the most is problem solving. So even in our dreams, in some kind of way or other, we're trying to solve some kind of problem. Can't you, you know, we've all had dreams about trying to find our way someplace, or we kind of got lost, or, or trying to go, um, you know, go go through some circuitous route to some place we haven't been before. You know, all those kinds of dreams, but. Um, sometimes they'll have meaning. Sometimes they sometimes they have just like 
not mean not meaning at all. So sometimes they seem to be totally irrelevant to anything. Yeah, I was yeah. about to ask you what what you know suddenly. Gee, I had a dream last night about Joe Fabitz, who I knew in the tenth grade. You know, I haven't even thought about him all these years. Uh, he could be alive, dead. I don't know. Uh, I haven't literally hasn't even entered my consciousness in forty years or thirty years or twenty years or whatever. Exactly. You know, and I think as as I become more of a meditator, there's kind of this this way in which you can just sit in what's called watch your thoughts. You can also just kind of sit and watch. Become a thought watcher. Watch yeah. your dreams. So you can watch your dreams. You can watch your thoughts, and that's what the basically, you know, the kidney. The kidney is just there, and its job is to make urine. The brain's job is to make thoughts. Here's Adam Miller who wants to know: How does the modern diet, with its high levels of processed and refined foods, impact hormone levels in the body and subsequently mood and emotional well-being? Oh boy, it's a great question because you know um, some of the the compounds in our water and our foods and things can tweak our hormones in various directions, and you know the uh, they're trying to take those things out of the plastics and out of the things that leach into our food that may decrease male fertility and increase estrogen. Mostly, it's increasing estrogen levels in males that we worry about, and the fishes the fishes in various waters. Um, the fertility has gone down because there's um, so many of the plastics that we put into our waterways that have basically leached into the fishes, and the male fishes in particular are more estrogenized. I think and frogs are not even reproducing. They're not reproducing. So uh, it seems to be um, not as much of a problem in humans that we that we know of, but it's you know it's 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 pushing in that direction. So I think that it's something that we. We really need environmentally, uh, environmentally cleaning up everything that we can that's going to affect our hormones. But he's right; it they do many things affect our hormones, and you know, lots of things that we put additives in our food are, are not not so great for for a lot of our systems. You know, this 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 the sweeteners like sucralose and things. Those are, you know, those are there's certain sweeteners that are that are not so great. We think it's think it's great to take that instead of sugar, but. Sometimes that just makes us want to eat more sugar. So there's, you know, you may you may think you're doing something good by putting some additive in a food when actually it's not doing. Same thing with taking too many supplements. I think the the marketing the marketing of supplements to the population and how every supplement's going to help you in some way or other. I mean, I was honestly, this is just ridiculous. I mean, you, you know, it's like it's very. I know Consumer Reports this month's issue came out with all of an evaluation of all the major supplements that we take, and I think it's very well done because the, there's the research on them is pathetically low. So, to re read it, read it with a grain of salt. But um, so you know, we we think we're doing something good for ourselves, and sometimes it's going to backfire. Yeah, there's a lot of wisdom embedded in that. Um, I want to ask you also about, uh, when we think about differences between men and women, viva la difference and all of that, but the reality is um, that too often what's neglected are those who are drawn to the same sex and where that all fits in and how that, I mean, is it, we, we see different hormonal levels, we see different brain operation or architecture or... I mean, remember there was that whole idea of the gay gene and um, the distinction between 
people who were yeah Simon Levay, 1991 all, yeah. all those papers that came out about the the gay gene in this certain area of the brain that most of it gay. pretty much but repudiated. it's not it's repudiated yeah. because yeah. it was all it was basically artifacts because the brains they were looking at were men who had died of AIDS so it, it was That's actually right. it was debunked entirely um, but what do we know about the, the differences know, in the brain so yeah. so I think I think that um, I think that something I've always always said and it's that's that's true is like let's let's take for example. Um, Let's go. Let's go to puberty, back to puberty, because it's if you look at a male and female. Let's take. Let's look. Look at two males. One who's going to end up being same sex attracted, and the other's going to be opposite sex attracted. It all unfolds during puberty, during those years of like who you're attracted to, who you find attractive, who you like. Same sex is going to same sex is going to be something that evolves and really escalates during puberty. If you're attracted to same sex, that's what's going to happen during those years of puberty. If you're opposite sex attracted, that's what's going to happen those years. So it's all. What I want the point is like it all unfolds naturally at the at, at the same time, whether you're going to be same sex or opposite sex attracted. So um, there's where's the come hither thing, and where's the know? come well come hither thing is definitely. I mean, there's a very you know if if you. If, I don't know. I have I have I have quite a few gay male friends and and, and gay female friends in my life too. But <clears throat> there's a very visual come hither world in the especially in, in male gay gay world. I mean, you and I both grew up close to the Castro, so it's like you know we're we're you know that the the um the you know the the dating and mating game. For same sex is got Pretty its own world. Comparable, really. It's very yeah. comparable yeah. to the to the hetero world. So it's it's just it's got its own peculiarities, obviously. But there's there's not any real difference in how it unfolds hormones in the human. The, the hormones are the same. So I guess I think the point you may be driving at is like, what's the difference, and how do you how does one person go one direction, and one person goes a different direction, and we we just we do not know the answer to that. But it's not something. It's not something that's. It's not something that happens to you or is done to you or is like. It's like, or is in the mother's milk or anything. You're, as far as we know, you're born that way. It's not something that's. That's not something that you change. It's. It's how. It's how you are. It's who you are. I know this is uh, going to sound a little bit like a name drop, but I remember interviewing famous writer Margaret Atwood, and we were talking about homosexual behavior, something about from one of her novels. And uh, she said, I, I, I can't understand how that can be explained in terms of uh, survival of the species. Okay. So there, there are some attempts to explain the survival of the species issue and having people who are... Um, not or natural opposites. selection for that. Yeah, right? natural selection, and also that, um, and it all kind of there's there's kind of a bit, a larger bucket that it falls in, even with the grandmother effect and things, and with so non non procreating. So you take gay men and women. I mean, that's not true anymore because they're having children now. But before they were they were a group, they were a population that didn't have children, and the thought was is that they were actually adjunctly helpful to um, raising raising the their their nieces and nephews raising other like remember your remember your 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 grandchildren for example you know they're they're genetically very related to you but like your your brothers and sisters you know have half your genes and then their children will have 25% of your genes too 
So your nieces and nephews have 25. They're as related to you, Michael, as your grandchildren are. Your nieces and nephews are related genetically to you as your grandchildren are. So there's a feeling about that, too, that that has probably... um, So anything that can help children survive in a given family or in a lineage, a lineage is going to give an advantage to that lineage. And so the thought was that... um, uh, that gay aunts and uncles that didn't procreate were going to be helpful to their nieces and nephews and helpful to that whole to your whole line of genes. So there's this whole there's lots of theories and lots of people have written about that. So that's just a like, you know, it's a good hypothesis. There's a hypothesis that's that could be. I mean, it's interesting. It, at least it's interesting. It's it's who knows whether it's true or not, but it's like it's an interesting hypothesis and uh, it's a way to kind of it's a different way to kind of think of it. Well, you have a hypothesis in your writing where you say, let's, I, I think we're dealing largely with a heterosexual world when you say this, but uh, women should let men be men? What does that mean? Yeah, I mean, I really feel like um, the issue of the, there's, there's, there's opposite sex bashing that goes on a lot. It goes, it goes, you know, it's kind of a, you know, just, you know, blaming men for being men and men, women and men blaming women for being women. I mean, it's like, it's like enough already, right? Because it's like, there's, and that's why one of the reasons I like the understanding the hormonal piece of this, because, you know, you know, you're not going to say to somebody, oh, um, you should go and be on a stretch machine and make yourself six inches taller or something, or you should reduce your size and make yourself, you know, six inches shorter. Or, you know, we, we don't, we don't think about draconian. We don't, we don't, we don't, we don't ask people to change parts of their body. We don't, why do we ask them to change parts of their brain, change parts of parts of who, who what's hormonally driving their behavior? Oh, but I what think, about the hidden lady in me, for example, D.H. Lawrence? Hidden lady in you, okay. Because I know in the, the I know because also in, in the in, in the Tibetan Buddhist world, there's like this all these things about being both sides of yours, being the male well, or being and androgynous. Female. I mean, people kind of welcome and, androgyny, you know, don't we they? All, Cross fertilization. We all have some aspects, or we all have some androgyny. You know, I I mean, I have some traits. For example, um. My husband cannot find his way around navigationally, even though he's lived in the Bay Area for 35 years. If I say, well, could you go, well, just go down to the corner of like, you know, you know, like, like Bush and, you know, Presidio or something. And he, he wouldn't have a clue how to get there. He would have to look at a map, you know, whatever. But it's like, or he'll have me driving there, you know. And I'm, so I have a very acute navigational sense, which is supposed to be male rather than female. So I've seen that in, uh, Yosemite, in fact, you're. It's like you knew your way around there, like you had been. Well, you've been there a number of times, but you could have been a scout or a guide. <laughs> so some of us have. So there's there's things that that are more prevalent. If you look at so if you look at any gender difference and you look at the so there's this thing called the D. It's called in this kind of statistics. It's called the D. The D. The D uh, level, which, like for example, on average, males. The D level for height in males and females is a D of 0.8, which basically means on average, males are taller than female at the level of 0.8. So 0.8 gives you a feeling for like a difference. But a lot of the gender differences are down at a a D level of like 0.2, which is like very minuscule, you know. So we, we look, there's lots of studies who look at these things and look at how much the difference really is. My point being is that 
the difference in the, some of these things we call gender differences is actually quite small. That's why I say we're minuscule, minuscule, yeah. very, very small. That's like almost unnoticeable. I mean, we do notice the height difference on average between males and females, right? So that is something that's noticeable. And there are some brain differences that are kind of in that equivalent level of height differences. But mostly things are in a very much smaller level. And so um, I think that but let, let males be males and let females be females or just let, let people be who the heck they are no matter where they fit on this. I, I think it's, I really like the hormonal, um, uh, the biology of hormones is as was important to me also in feeling like, you know, you are wired for who you are. You're hormonally balanced for who you are. And, and you know, um, forgive yourself for all your own picadillos, but also forgive other people for theirs. It's not something, you know, it's just embrace who you are is, is part of what this the whole hormonal piece of this has, has given to me over the many years I've been studying it. How do you account for, um, well, let me give an example of something I saw recently. I think it was a meme. These two boys, they're maybe about nine or ten years old, are sitting in a classroom, and a young woman comes in very statuesque and quite attractive, and she says, I'm going to be your teacher, and introduces herself, and she said, I'm going to leave and I'll be back. And they, like, look at each other, and they giggle, and they get, you know, all excited and everything. And there was something that was clearly represented in that, that they were trying to show. This is how little boys... And I started thinking about how little boys joke about, for example, um, farting, you know, in ways that you don't necessarily hear little girls do. Maybe now it's more more balanced than it was, but those kinds of differences are what you've been writing about. You know, yeah, fart jokes. Years. Fart jokes are typical. I mean, little boys love fart jokes. So they, and, you know, little girls aren't so interested in fart jokes. But, yeah, and you wonder why. And what, then boys what, get a little older, and everything is a sex joke. You know, everything, as soon as they hit puberty, everything is a, everything's a sex Every They look at every every pair of breasts that walks by, no matter how, you know, whatever the age the woman is, they're, they're glued to every pair of breasts that walk by. But that can keep going, even when the testosterone is uh, sort of it's re- habit. being Reduced, it's habit, Michael. You know, <laughs> Don't give up your it's old habit, habitual. Yeah. <laughs> no, but I mean that that whole sense of difference is outlined almost very early in terms of just what the vectors are, what's being gravitated toward. You know, and you can see it, and and uh, it's a different brain and different hormones, really. Very much so, and and like boys like to. A little, remember that thing about like girls have cooties. You little boys in their in their you know grade school days that, that before they before the hormones hit them and they think there might be something interesting about girls, right? Before that happens, they, they there's this thing about all girls have cooties and whatever. They they're not very interesting to play with because they don't like to, you know, whatever. That's that's become that's maybe become less so. I mean, in the my my son was very into the video gaming world and it was highly male. It was highly male. There were only very few females that were in that world. So it's there's there's some there's some what we call self self sex segregation that goes on. And I this is this is also an area where let's say let's say a, a young let's say a young young boy who's going to be who is trans won't like to necessarily hang out with the boys and do fart jokes. They would much rather hang out with the girls and do, you know so it's a very it's it, you self identified who you like to hang out with at a very early age and there's a lot a lot of variation. Well, given your background as a feminist and as a feminist thinker, um, what about the idea that girls develop some kind of penis envy? That you know, once they realize they have internal organs and boys have external organs, 
I mean, this is basic Freudian 101. So it's, it's all about when you start to notice the differences, you know, and, and I think in different cultures, it's a little bit different about the, the it's been shown that it's, it's a little bit different. It's like um, in, in societies where male privilege, male privilege is like, it, which is less and less in our culture now, but I know certainly in my mother's generation, male privilege was a really big thing, you know, and um, so that, you know, penis envy also was implying like envy of the automatic status given to males, you know, in, in a culture versus females. Um, and, but I think that um, there's also that little, oh gosh, I remember my son, I um, anyway, he wouldn't mind me telling you this, but when it, it, I, I said, "Yeah, honey, little 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 boys have penises, and little little girls have uteruses, and they can they can have a baby and whatever you know that that's what the uterus is for, et cetera, et cetera." He says, "Well, I have a uterus too." So there's this aspect of like not wanting to give up the option of having having both. You know, it was it was really weird to me to watch this happen, but I think it's like. There's, there's something about the, the, you know, and the penis envy has become a kind of, sort of a joke over the years. But when little children notice the differences and they're told that they are one or the other, it's, it's a bit of shock up to their system to try and incorporate what that means about who they are and where they fit in in the society. So I, I think it's a, I think we don't know a, a lot about how that process goes, but it's, it's, it's like, it's maybe the first time you're told you can't, you can't be or can't do something else. You know, I think my son was responding to like, well, if he didn't have a uterus, he couldn't have a baby that meant whatever. He was a different, he was different somehow, you know, and he's grown up like whatever. <laughs> like, well, it's a difference know. in brain though. I, again, we get back to the, how much the brain uh, plays a role in all this. I, you know, I was seeing recently some old footage of young girls screaming at, I think it was Frankie Avalon or Fabian or somebody like that, you know, and they're screaming. I mean, what's causing them to scream? Well, that's uh, called emotional contagion, Michael. So in a way, it's like, you know, there's emotional contagion. But you don't see boys it's, doing that. Boys do don't necessarily sit there. Well, I don't know, but, some, you know, there's there's some, you know, I mean... Boys are looking at the chest. Some gay maybe. boys, gay boys made like whatever you know. There's some very, there's a lot of variation yeah. in this. Yeah. Actually, there's a lot of variation, and um, so and you know maybe a lot of trans. They'll have different different aspects of, of what they find. But this issue of the, the you know the, the quintessential one was the girls screaming at the Beatles was you know yeah. like certainly you know more in my generation, and, and they were like screaming to the point of tears. You know they're just like. Totally a dither, you know. They were in a puddle of like screaming, and this was kind of an emotional contagion that that went around amongst the girls. Um, boys may have a similar thing with like you know the, the giggling over fart jokes or something. I mean, it's you know they're they're just they're they're kind of having emotional contagion, but that's that's how it's thought of is in that category. Is emotional contagion hardwired though? In terms it, of evidently, gender? Evidently, yes. Yeah. In, in terms of just also in human in human beings in human beings, and that's part of that is that part of. So we're getting into the area of like emotional resonance with another person and empathy with another person. The empathy and emotional contagion. We need to have a little bit of emotional contagion abilities in order to really feel the feelings of another person. And that's empathy. And females tend to be a little bit better at that in some ways, thinking that it has to be tuned that way, since females are usually responsible for the survival of helpless infants to a greater degree 
than most males are, since the females are going to be doing the breastfeeding, the caretaking. You know, the, so if he, females are made to help helpless infants survive, we're very highly wired for that. And this issue of emotional contagion, we we have to know what helpless, nonverbal little human infant needs for several years before they're really able to to tell us what they need. So that's the emotional contagion. That's the empathy circuits. We call the mirror neurons that you've heard so much about is something about how you can resonate with another person at that level. And then by that virtue of resonating with them, you can feel out, you can figure out what they're feeling. And women, I think you have described as having some of the research at least suggests uh, more of a memory for details, for example, when there's a fight between a man and a woman than men are capable of doing, or uh, women have deeper relationships with friends than men do. All of these things suggesting maybe a hard wiring again? Well, I think that the, emo- the, the, the bit about remembering, remembering the details of a fight, like where you... So there's something called emotional memory, and the, the little tags get put on. Like m- maybe you remember right where you were standing when um, uh, um, your wife agreed to marry you. And that's an emotional moment, and it gets coded and filed in our brains in a very special way because it's got emotional memory tagged to it. So those things that we all have, those events that were either shocking, upsetting, or highly powerful moments, you often remember right where you were standing, um, um, and females remember those things, and maybe they remember the exact time, the day, the 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 color of the wallpaper on the room, or the you know, or the the cologne that he was wearing. It, you know, so all those little things that get encoded, females tend to are shown to pay a little more attention to all of those details. I'm reminded of a book that came out in the '70s. I'm sure you're familiar with. Um, Men are from Mars, women are from Venus. John Gray wrote that book. It was quite a sensation. But it's been uh, especially criticized and criticized profoundly as the years have progressed because, uh, well, so has the idea, for example, that you should give have non-gender toys for kids or this sort of thing. I mean, it was at one point almost consistent with the idea, on the one hand, that there was this bifurcation between men and women. They had totally different brains and would be expected to behave differently, men being more Mars-like, more warlike, women being from Venus, more romance-like, and so forth. And then the idea around the same time in that zeitgeist of that period that somehow, um, you know, you should give, recognize equity between genders so that maybe men were the same species again, or from the same planet. Um, is there some way to find harmony between those kind of polarities, in your judgment? From so I know that I mean I know there was this big thing about not giving little boys any kind of you know don't give them any weapons, don't give them any like GI Joes, whatever it was, or like you know my son was always like into the Pokemon things and the little you know those little figurines that boys like of like superheroes or whatever it is for that era or even like dinosaurs or, or things. I mean I feel like. Each child is such an individual that that catering to that individuality is what makes sense for the development of that child. And, you know, um, this the fantasy of, like, not giving a child something that's going to emphasize their 
their gender like like don't give any little boys any weapons or anything because that'll that'll make them into a to a shooter when they're shooter in their teens or something it's like just totally ridiculous i mean that's um you know we i think parents can emphasize uh nonviolence they can emphasize all kinds of things in the family but to take it to the to the limit of like not giving little girls dolls and not giving little boys whatever typical boy toys going on or giving them you no know, video games those kinds of things restricting that can often like have a flip side of like then they're as soon as they they're able they're going to go completely to the opposite side I think we're past that at least we're I, past hope, that. I hope we're we're, pa but are we past the idea of you know such differences, such bifurcation between men and women, you know, Mars and Venus and that sort of I thing. I think what's going on, I think what's going on right now is just recognizing our humanity, each of us. We're recognizing our humanity and that all of the aspects of ourselves, and we may call them more feminine-like, the feminine side of us, you know, the yin and the yang and the, you know, is, is you know, looking at, but I, I think that, I think we're putting fewer, fortunately, we're putting fewer gender labels on things. I think it was actually Montague who said the most interesting people are those who are cross-fertilized, you know, I mean, in terms of gender, who have a kind of, I don't know, I don't want to use the word androgyny again, but who have a kind of blending of male, well, I think it's very traditional male to female to trans, traits. to trans people, actually, yeah. for me. And I've had, had several friends uh, and one colleague who I went through all of, of her entire transition with her. And it was very, it was fascinating to me because, you know, she did, she actually made the transition in her 60s. And so... But just you know the the aspects of God, the the cultural imprint imprint of the maleness on her as she's trying to transition to female to female um, was was quite profound. It's very interesting. So we the cultural imprint that's on us is we can learn so much from each other and learn learn so much from people that are that have diverse pathways to becoming whoever they really authentically are. Ask you a provocative question. Should someone who has transitioned, say, from being a man to being a woman, was a swimming champion as a man, be swimming competitively as a woman? You know, that's a really hot topic and I just I just don't know enough about which direction we need to go in that because I do I know that testosterone and all the musculature that comes along with testosterone is going to make somebody stronger and you know probably make them a, a strong stronger at whatever athletic um, enterprise they're involved in and so um, yeah, women aren't playing professional football for a good reason I yeah think. and the testosterone levels in females, and so I, I feel like I think they need to think more deeply about that and get some expert panel together of some people that are really like experts in testosterone and performance and decide on they're going to have to decide on where the line is. It can't just it won't just be willy nilly. You know, there's going to have to be somebody that makes some hard, hard line decisions about, you know, what what's acceptable, what's not so that it's fair. So that it's fair for everybody. Not going to make everybody happy, whatever that decision oh, is. Oh, no. And this issue about, you know, all this the stuff about male and female being so diverse. I mean, I, I really do come back, Michael, to the fact that, you know, we are more alike than we are different. After all, we are the same species. This would be a wonderful way to end, but actually I don't want to end there. I want to ask you one more question from your new book, The Upgrade, um, because you were talking about transitioning. There's a lot in there about transitioning to menopause and some real wisdom, I think, that we can glean. What are you telling women when they suddenly face menopause or 
I, I'm saying that if you get through the get through the rock and roll of that, what I call the transition, the transition years, which I've renamed the transition years instead of the perimenopause, since those were used by pharmaceutical words used from the medical profession. I want to talk about it as the whole woman's process, a whole woman going from 40 to 50. And then, you know, the the nice thing about it is the up, reason the upgrade is a word that happens postmenopausally is because you can, it, there's so many aspects when you stop being driven by these up and down hormones every single week of your menstrual cycle where you can just basically reclaim your authentic self in a way that doesn't have to be pushed and pulled by these other uh, forces. And it's it's exciting time. It's a wonderful time that you basically are able to um, choose a slightly new direction for yourself or to, you have choices. All of a sudden you have choices because average age of death for a woman in the year 1900, Michael, was age 49. So most women didn't even make it to menopause then. Now we have a whole nother half of our life in front of us, and it's got all kinds of like wonderful aspects to it. And that's why I wrote the book, The, the Upgrade, because I wanted to, to have female really, really all, all of us women really think about what that means and, and who, who we want to be, how we want to be in the second half. And boy, you got some really wonderful testaments in that book. Jane Fonda, no less, you know, who has been an exercise guru for so many, for so many years and everything, saying, I wish I had found this book earlier. And it's made so much of a difference in her life. And you've made a big difference in lots of people's lives. Always great to talk to you. And I want to say for all of you who are listening, many thanks for being with us for this episode of Gray Matter with Michael Krasny. And an important reminder to let you know to those who don't know about us, to know about us simply by going to our website at graymatter.show. And thanks to all of you who are with us live and to all who will be joining us in the indeterminate future. Thanks, too, to our preeminent team, Alex, Shannon, Colin, Chad, and Kevin. And special thanks to this episode's special guest, Dr. Luann Brizendine. I'm Michael Krasny. Thanks for having me, Michael. Bandwidth for Gray Matter is provided by Cashfly at C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com.